0: Welcome to the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, and it's Friday the 13th, 2023. Let's start this week with what I think is really a great overview of polymyalgia rheumatica. Sarah Mackey and colleagues published this week in Lancet a full read review. you got to download this. you got to read it. It's a great reference. It covers all the concerns that you may have, um, and it's available this week in Lancet. It's called a seminar Um, sort of like an overview or review. Um, The few bullets that I put down when I tweeted this out was, we all know the starting dose is 12.5 to 25 of prednisone. If you were on this week's Tuesday Night Rheumatology, we had a great discussion led by David Liu uh, on steroids and PMR. And our panelists, uh, almost across the board, Max Yates, uh, Lindsay, Lolly, and... Uh, Richard Conway, uh, David Liu, all said their starting dose is 15, and they seldom go above 30. Anyway, the review says 12.5 to 25 per day is starting dose. Um, While many or most will achieve remission on the way to remission and during tapering, 40 to 60 percent will relapse. We know that. That's the difficult part of managing PMR. We all know that the onset is pretty quick in PMR, uh, and that Stiffness in the morning does predominate. The thing that I uh, have learned this uh, past two weeks with all these experts on PMR putting up written and video and audio content is really the dominance of shoulder complaints. Bilateral shoulder complaints is more prevalent than is the hip girdle musculature. In fact, having isolated hip girdle musculature would be, I think, a red flag in trying to make that diagnosis, and the Sarah's uh, Dr. Mackey's review says um, about 50% of PMR patients will have distal symptoms. So you shouldn't say it's not PMR because the wrists are swollen or the fingers are achy or there's knee pain. Anyway, the, I think the big thing this month that's underscored in this review is that ultrasounds a very useful tool, and the uh, the criterion. the the, the ultrasound criterion that can be used for diagnosis would be bilateral subacromial or subdeltoid bursitis. Other forms of inflammation can be seen, but those are criterion. There's another interesting article. um, It's uh, about relapse. Uh, It's a large study um, from uh, 2005 that uh, I thought was worth putting up, given the discussions had this week on the website about p m r and relapse three hundred and sixty four patients average age almost seventy three um, two hundred and eighty four were treated with steroids that's kind of interesting is it eighty out of three hundred and sixty not treated with steroids what's going on there anyway um, when they looked at those who had relapse, the factors that were predictive was a higher initial corticosteroid dose and a faster corticosteroid taper. Relapse is fourfold higher when you tapered the steroids too fast, uh, hazard ratio 4.3. So what's going on there? Higher doses leading to relapse. Either that means higher doses, meaning worse patients. And then maybe because you don't want to be on high dose steroids, maybe you go too fast, right? That's... That's one way of looking at why higher doses um, may... I don't know that higher doses in itself is the predictor. I think it's the story behind the higher doses that leads to why those people might need a much slower taper. Uh, so anyway, the takeaway on this article was minimize the the, the dose uh, and taper slowly. That seems reasonable. Minimizing dose probably is... Uh, it, the higher dose you use... Obviously, you cover uh, a greater percentage of people who will get better, but I think maybe it's also setting expectations with patients. If you're giving too high a dose of steroids, they're going to love that really high dose, and getting off that's going to be difficult, and that's another reason why they may flare. Anyway, be careful with your initial dose of steroids, and obviously the slow taper is important. Uh, A a study from Turkey, um, and it's a cohort study of 1,100 psoriatic arthritis patients looked at Uh, Their onset period and was right. They wrote about the diagnostic delay. So, this was a big thing, you know, 10, 20 years ago, and we don't talk much about delay in diagnosis. And I still think it's a big problem, mainly because you, the rheumatologist, don't advertise who the primary care doctor should send to you. You don't facilitate that, and most of you do not have an early arthritis clinic or an early PSA clinic or a fast-track clinic for PMR. So it's not surprising that delays occur. In this study, in Turkey, the median del- the mean delay was 35 months. The median delay, 12 months. Obviously, there's a skew there. Um, about a third were diagnosed within three months. Congratulations. But two-thirds were diagnosed within two years. The good news is that the delay in diagnosis has dropped from 60 months to 24 months prior to 2010 to more recently in 2019. The factors that did contribute to a diagnostic delay were less education on the part of the patient, um, arthritis presenting before the skin disease, psoriasis, and low back pain as the initial uh, symptom. Those all make study sense to me, and I do think that we do need to be more proactive about how we get patients into our clinics, especially the people that you think you can do the most good for. A really novel study was published this week. I think it was in uh, arthritis, uh, sorry, anal rheumatic disease by David Felson and, co- and colleagues. You know, if you want to study osteoarthritis, as Felson and a lot of others have, the animal model is you cause knee instability by either clipping the the meniscus, uh, or an ACL, uh, and you run or a cruciate and you run the dog and then you get accelerated fast osteoarthritis. This study basically lays out a template as to how you can get, uh, uh basically make a human model. And what they have is a large cohort, you know, what's called the moon study, of uh, 2,300 adults who are undergoing post-traumatic ACL reconstruction surgery. Um, And then, as you can imagine, um, most of those are young. Most of those don't have pre existing osteoarthritis. Um, And when they follow that cohort, they find 16 to 26 percent will have ongoing mild to moderate pain measured in several different ways. But the idea of A having um, joint instability caused by ACL uh, damage and then repair. And then uh, ongoing pain and resuming activity, that's the model for accelerated osteoarthritis, is it not? So they thought that this would be a good situation where you could study interventions, either lifestyle or drug or intraarticular, et cetera. I thought it was a novel way of looking at osteoarthritis going forward. In Korea, they now have a Galaxy watch, Samsung Galaxy watch that will be approved by the korean health ministry for the detection of sleep apnea many of us have um smart watches apple watches i use a, a something called a me band watch that monitors my sleep and steps and oxygen level and heart rate and even breathing but it doesn't really look for the ingredients of sleep apnea uh, in 2024 this galaxy watch will be approved in korea not the united states not the rest of the world. Um, For the detection of sleep apnea, and we'll do so by monitoring blood pressure, um, heart rhythms, uh, blood O2 levels, and breathing. I thought that was novel because one of the biggest problems we have is in the early detection of sleep apnea, getting patients to go to to get a, a proper sleep study, either in a sleep lab or even at home. It's just like pulling teeth, getting people to get these things done, which will really help their health. Anyway, this is a step forward. A study of uh, the reproductive health of scleroderma patients was looked at with 342 uh, all-form systemic sclerosis. And they found in this study, 32% had some form of reproductive problems. Uh, And this included earlier menopause, 45 years versus 48 years. Uh, More spontaneous abortions, 12 versus 4%. More premature births, 22 versus 6%. Uh, low birth weight, 27 versus 5%. Obviously, the higher number is a scleroderma patient. The lower number is the age-matched population. More C-sections in scleroderma as well, 49% uh, versus 19%. Interestingly, no reports of increased infertility in patients with systemic sclerosis. Uh, if you're a muscle nut like me, you like these kind of data about prevalence and epidemiology, uh, a well-done report shows that the incidence is 0.2 to 2 cases per 100,000 patient years, with an overall prevalence of about, well, 2 to 25 per 100,000 in the population, uh, making it a rare uh, condition. Uh, it does, The incidence rates and prevalence rates do vary with geography uh, and with gender, um, but uh, they did note that the, these uh, inflammatory uh, myopathies are still uh, under-reported in South Africa, um, South, I'm sorry, Africa, South America, and Asia. So it tends, therefore, be, you know, a Northern European, Scandinavian, largely Caucasian disorder, uh, although we certainly see it in other uh, um, racial groups and uh, pretty much in all genders. Um a few years ago, in Grand Rounds at University of Texas, we were having a combined conference with our pediatric rheumatology department, and our pediatric rheumatologists were asserting that uh, anakinra can be associated, or IL-1 inhibition can be associated with hepatotoxicity, and I said, I don't know about that. I did a, I did the original research in, in anakinra and its use in Um, rheumatoid arthritis leading to its FDA approval. There are a lot of anakinra studies and whatnot and and use a lot of anakinra in treating patients with systemic JIA stills disease. Um, Anyway, it turns out that they were right, and I was not aware of the cutting edge that they were aware of, and that is hepatotoxicity can occur with anakinra and also, by the way, other IL-1 inhibitors. It's been reported quite a bit in pediatric rheumatology patients, obviously getting anakinin either for auto-inflammatory conditions or Stills disease, um, and these are mainly taking the form of LFT elevations, usually not to the point of liver damage, and it is sort of a drug-induced syndrome, so you stop the drug, the, the liver dysfunction does go away. Um, and and they had three case reports I put those up, and interestingly, that was the default diagnosis, even though there are other reasons such patients would... Have LFT elevations, so their systemic inflammatory disease, like Stills' disease, well known, 40 to 60 percent will have uh, LFT elevations. The development of macrophage activation syndrome, which is LFTs are a hallmark feature, other drugs that they may get. Anyway, even when those are excluded, uh, ion inhibition can be associated with uh, LFT elevations. You might want to look for that. I think the big news of the week, um, at least according to our website, is that the FDA approved the IV formulation of um, a an IL-17 inhibitor, previously, as you know, approved for a lot of different things, adults and kids. But now the IV formulation has only been approved for uh, adults with psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and non-radiographic axial spa, all three of them, okay? So now you have um, options in your patients um, where you can use IV or subcutaneous secukinumab to treat psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis, AS, non-radiographic axial spa, and enthesitis-related uh, arthritis in the youngins. Um, the, what, what do you need to know about this subcutaneous formulation? It's given as a half-hour infusion. Uh, it's like all your other infusion therapies, um, and it's like the package insert has shown uh, a difference between a loading dose and not a loading dose. If you're using a loading dose, uh, and you don't have to use a loading dose in PSA, AS, and non-radiographic ex but if you do, it's six milligrams per kilogram given at week zero, and thereafter all infusions are every four weeks, where the usual dose is one point ma- seven five. 1.75 milligrams per kilogram given every four weeks. You do not exceed an IV dose of greater than 300. Uh, in looking through the package insert, I see no other um, concerns or red flags. It does say, you know, check for TB prior to or with the start of therapy and because that's what it said for a secukinamab before. Um, do I believe IL-17 inhibition is a risk factor for TB? No, I don't why then is it in the package insert because that's the way the studies were done and that's it pure and simple your risk of tb as you know very very high with tnf inhibitors tnf inhibitors and oh yeah tnf inhibitors and maybe anything that uh, inhibits interferon to some extent but all the other biologics we use have very low risk and if they get them if you see it, TB events on other biologics, B-cell inhibitors, T-cell inhibitors, whatever, it's because you're in a high endemic area or it's a very fluke event, uh, whereas there's a biologic rationale for the risk with um, TNF inhibitors. Uh, so that's the big news on secukinumab. Uh Again, another report enforcing that the COVID experience has been a challenge for uh, uh, rheumatic disease patients. So a study of... Um, over 350,000 COVID-infected individuals compared to 6.1 million controls shows that COVID infection increased the risk of alopecia areata, and this is new cases, new reports, by 12%. Alopecia told talus by 74%. percent Anca associated vasculitis, uh, almost threefold or 300% increased risk. Crohn's disease and sarcoidosis also increased um, and you know, other studies have said uh, said almost the same thing. Uh, I guess the point is that you know that spike protein and infection is a is a stimulus that has, generates an, an innate immune response. It is a pathogen associated molecular pattern leading to the inflammasome being activated. And in some people, they may be that's sort of the, all the, the trigger they be, they need to become an autoimmune state. Interesting. Lastly, we're going to end with um, the CDC MMWR report of this week, actually published today, the 13th, that there are 53.2 million people with uh, uh, diagnosed arthritis. This data comes from their um, periodic surveys using um, the, the National Health uh, Information Survey, NHIS. Usually an in-home uh, person-to-person person to person survey of all kinds of uh, medical conditions and health practices, Um, you know, a large sampling. Uh, This particular sampling was done 2019 to 21. Hence, it was um, interrupted by uh, COVID and the pandemic, and they reverted to telephone interviews to collect a lot of this data. So what do we know? Basically, first, 21% of U.S. adults have diagnosed arthritis. This is different than self-reported arthritis, where the numbers are higher. But their prior survey, I think, was 58.5 million, uh, and I'll tell you why. It's lower now. So this current 21% is 53 million. Uh, it turns out that anyone who has uh, comorbidities, you know, the ones that you worry about, diabetes, COPD, heart disease, cancer, CVA, etc uh, 52 to 60 of those patients also report diagnosed arthritis. Um, Not surprising. Arthritis is more common in women than men, 21 versus 16%. Veterans versus non-veterans, 24 versus 18%. Non-Hispanic whites was the highest ethnic group. Um, And then adults over the age of 45 really represent about 88% 88% of all U.S. adults who have arthritis. So, as I said, this number is below that reported in the 2016-2018 NHIS prevalence survey, um, where it was uh, yes, 58.5 million or 23.7%. Reasons why it may be lower is that in that in this recent time frame, they had to redesign the survey to make it more efficient. So. Not all the same questions are there uh, from the old survey, and there are some new ones. And then you can also interject the potential uh, for some bias induced by the the pandemic and the different uh, data collection uh, process that they went through. Anyway, that's it for this week on on the podcast. I hope you saw this week's Tuesday Night Rheumatology, Steroids and PMR. Oh my goodness, what a great hour. Tons of great questions. You really should listen to that podcast or look at that video. It features David Liu, Lindsay Lolly, um, uh, Richard Conway, and Max Yates all doing a fabulous job. This next week coming up, um, Sebastian Satui is going to lead a discussion on um, steroid sparing therapy and PMR. I think you'll find that one really interesting as well. That's it. Have a great week. Be well.